Well, good morning to you, friends, once again. It's good to see you all, good to be with you. Uh, I see a lot of uh, friends and family of Freeman. I want to welcome you to our service this morning. Yeah, we can give a little woohoo for Freeman. We're excited for your baptism. Yeah, okay. We're looking forward to that. Now, to catch all of you visitors up, we, you're catching us in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, we've been going through uh, a, a series called The Journey of Redemption, where we're, we've been looking at the four women who make up the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, so far, we've covered Tamar and Rahab, and today we're looking at Ruth, and we're going to dive right in. So I invite you to open up your Bibles and go to the book of Ruth, beginning in chapter 1. Uh, if you need a, the pew Bibles are in front of you. Um, or you can open up your Bible on your phone. We'd love to have you follow along. And as you're turning there, uh, let me give you a little bit of context. This story is set in the time period of the judges, uh, where the people of God had no king, and people did just what was ever was right in their own eyes. Uh, and because of that, the people were often under the judgment of God and at war with the neighboring peoples around them. And so at that time, one of their mo- the people's most bitter enemies were the people of Moab, which is a very important point to the story. Now, the Advent candle that we, talk, uh, we lit today is the candle of joy, and it's ironic, or I think perhaps really appropriate, that the story in the book of Ruth starts out with a woman named Naomi who has lost all joy. She has lost the joy of living. Naomi is really the female counterpart to Job. The beginning of the story is, is brutal. Immense suffering comes upon her. We begin by learning there's a famine in the land, which is hard for us to appreciate, but that would be like getting laid off during the pandemic. This is a desperate situation. How will they survive? So like most immigrants and refugees, Naomi, her husband, and her two sons, they left their homeland seeking a better life, just trying to survive. It must have been very difficult to come to their enemy's territory seeking refuge, seeking peace. They had to leave their home, their extended family, their culture, their, their farmland, their, their comfort, and go to a strange land. So while in Moab, we tragically learn that Naomi's husband dies. So now she's a widow. She's without provision or protection. But she still has her two sons to look after her. They end up marrying uh, women from Moab, Orpah and Ruth, and they actually live there about 10 years. Now, don't forget that because the book of Ruth is so short, you forget that they actually lived there 10 years. What they thought would be a settled or just a brief journey becomes a settled stay. And in ancient society especially, the expectation was after marriage, first comes marriage, then comes a baby in the baby carriage. But that's not what happens. Every year must have been filled with disappointment as Naomi waited for another heir, a, grand, a grandson, a granddaughter to come. But then out of nowhere, her two sons also pass away. We're not told how, but it must have been some type of tragedy. This is an unexpected death in the family, two of them. Certainly she would test high for the stress and anxiety test they give these days. You know, coming to Moab was supposed to make their life better. But instead, it just made it bitter. It's a horrible start to the story. She's lost everything. She has no husband, no children, and no grandchildren. Naomi reminds me of Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of Abraham Lincoln. If you know her story, she lost three of her four sons 
And also we know she lost her husband as well. And Mary Tyler Lincoln was well known to suffer from immense grief, where people thought she was really crazy. But nowadays, we recognize that both of these women would need therapy for the trauma that they've experienced in their life. But no such help was available in those days. People didn't understand these types of things. So in this immense grief, through the grapevine, Naomi hears that, that God has come to the aid of his people. There's food back home. There's food back in Bethlehem. And she thinks to herself, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. It's been a rough journey in Moab. After all, a widow with no sons in a foreign land has no resources, no protection. She can't work. There's no Windsor Park in Moab. There's no nursing homes there, okay? Perhaps she can find some relatives in Bethlehem who can look after her in her old age. But So Naomi leaves with her two daughters-in-law, but somewhere along the journey, she, she tells them, just go back home. Go back home and find a husband back in Moab. You don't, you don't have to come with me. She says in chapter 1, verse 13, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi has lost all joy. And she even believes that God is against her. God has cursed her. And can we blame her for thinking this? Everything in her life has gone horribly wrong. Now, even though Ruth is uh, the woman who's named in the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus, and she's the namesake of this book, she is actually not the central character of the story. The story gets us to ask the question, what is going to happen to Naomi? How will God bring any redemption out of this tragedy? Will God have mercy on her as he had on the land of Bethlehem? So the story continues in verse 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now friends, this is the beginning of, spoiler alert, how Naomi is going to be restored to joy. But friends, I want you to catch this. Her joy in healing will not come by miraculous intervention, but by surprising acts of loving commitment from those around her. This is so important. Her joy and her healing are not going to become by, come by divine intervention, miraculous intervention, so to speak, but by surprising acts of loving commitment by the people around her. Now, I've intentionally used the phrase loving commitment because I think it's a good way of capturing some of the sense of that, that great Hebrew word I mentioned last week, hesed. That word means things like loving kindness, God's mercy, his covenant fidelity and loyalty, his faithfulness to his people. Loving commitment is a, is a way of capturing that because hesed is a commitment that seeks the welfare of somebody else. It's a love that seeks, is committed to the welfare of somebody else. And last week we talked about how Rahab showed hesed. She risked her life to save those spies, and they showed her hesed in return by being faithful to their promise. So Naomi is going to experience redemption through the loving commitment of others. So I want to look at a few people in the story. So we're going to look at first the loving commitment of Ruth. The loving commitment of Ruth. Ruth replies to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. 
And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is incredible. This is an incredible act of loving commitment. I mean, sometimes maybe you've been, you've been there where you just have to tell somebody you love, I don't care what you say, I am coming to be with you. I am coming to help you. You know, sometimes when you're in great need, you don't want to be an additional burden. You don't want to be an additional burden to somebody else. But the problem with that is sometimes we can, we can reject the very means that God is sending into our life to bring us help and healing. So Ruth pushes through that. She pushes through Naomi's initial resistance. And she says she's going to go wherever Naomi goes unto death. I mean, think about this. She is willing to become an, an immigrant into a foreign land that is considered her enemy. She will be a childless widow in a foreign place. And it's astounding that she says, your people will be my people. That's if they accept her. I mean, she's kind of banking on a lot there, right? Your people are going to be my people. She's willing to risk that and integrate herself into Naomi's community. And Ruth will become a minority. And she seems to have held the view at that time that, that the gods were over certain lands. So she realizes and she thinks that if I'm moving to Israel, then I need to give my loyalty, my allegiance to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. And so she says, I'm going to give my loyalty to Yahweh as well. She will be a worshiper of the Lord. This is actually her words here. These are kind of like a baptismal vow, which we're going to witness by Freeman in, in just a moment. But she says, God's going to be my God. I'm going to worship him. I am going with him. But my loyalty and allegiance is to this God. This is amazing. Ruth's loving commitment to Naomi will not let her go alone. And then when it says in verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And the wording there is just, she's kind of like, okay, fine. If you insist, you can come with me. She kind of gives up. So they come back to Bethlehem and they need to find a source of food. Naomi is too old to gather food for herself. So in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, Ruth is not only willing to do the hard labor to provide for Naomi, but we learn that what she's doing puts herself at risk. She puts herself in harm's way. As a foreign woman gleaning in the fields alone, she could be taken advantage of and harmed. But she doesn't have any other options to survive. She does what she must do to feed herself and Naomi. So out of love, she's committed to providing for her. Then it says in verse 3, she went out, she entered a field, she began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. Now, do you notice in the story how often the narrator and the people keep reminding us 
of Ruth's national and ethnic identity. It's like this overseer is putting it on a, on, on a billboard. She's the Moabite who came from Moab. It's like, okay, we got it. We got the picture here. I mean, it's hard for us to appreciate how strange this all must have been. I mean, Israel and Moab were enemies, and they were also neighboring peoples. They shared a, 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 the, the border, perhaps similar to Russia and Ukraine right now. You can imagine a situation like this happening there. But loving commitment knows no national or ethnic boundaries. Ruth is lovingly committed to Naomi's welfare. And Ruth will end up being the conduit of God's healing and joy back into Naomi's life. So we see this loving commitment through Ruth. Let's look at the loving commitment of Boaz in this story. He's the other main character we encounter, this man named Boaz. He's a man who knows much hesed, much kindness, loving commitment towards others. And Boaz says to Ruth, chapter 2, verse 8, My daughter, listen to me. We have to stop right there. To a, to a foreign enemy, he uses a term of family endearment. My daughter. He's willing to treat her, foreign woman, as his own daughter. And he says to her, he continues, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch, where the, field, uh, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And now it's even further confirmed that what Ruth is doing was actually really risky and dangerous. You know, I think about the risk and dangers that, you know, even women in our community who go, who go out running alone on the prairie path, they have to take extra precaution. The reality is just as just as today as then, women have to face dangers that men don't even have to think about simply because they're women. Especially this foreign woman in, in Ruth, she was at risk of abuse and violence. But Boaz will prove again and again that he is aware of the plight of other people. Boaz is a powerful person. He is, he, is a, he is a man who has prestige. He has a leadership position. He, is, he has resources. He obviously did well in the famine. He is, he, he is a man who has privilege and status. But that doesn't make him a bad person, by the way. He is willing to use everything at his disposal to bring up those who are on the margins, those who are less fortunate. He will use all of his resources, everything that God has given him, that he might lift up those who have less. He takes decisive action to protect Ruth. Don't go anywhere else. Work with the women who work for me. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And Ruth is shocked that this powerful Israelite man would do this for a foreign woman like her. But Boaz will do even more. In verse 15 of chapter 2, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and, and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. That's about 30 pounds. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Now, in the Old Covenant, there was a law that you could not fully harvest your crops. You couldn't just take it all. You had to leave some 
for the hungry poor who would come along and be able to glean from your, your leftovers. But Boaz is not content just to give Ruth the leftovers from his crops. He instructs his men, pull out extra. Let her go get it. He, wants, he gives her more above and beyond what was required to do. You know, Boaz's love is so impressive to me because you think about all the attitudes that, that he might have displayed. I mean, we know that the community just went through a famine. These people know what it's like to be on hard times, to have a scarce amount of resources. I mean, what if Boaz had operated out of a scarcity mindset? I mean, I, I imagine some people under him, some people in the community, they, they might have said things like this to him. Boaz, we can't afford to let foreigners use our resources. Doesn't her gleaning in the field take away an Israelite's job? she paying taxes? How did she come here? Did she come here legally? Does she have the right paperwork? Can she speak Hebrew? Does she know our country's history? Perhaps we should report her to the authorities and she can go use the resources back in Moab instead of ours. But no. God never wanted his people to operate out of an Israel first mindset. Never. In fact, he says that God says this Leviticus 19. You ever wonder if Leviticus is relevant here to contemporary life? Here it is. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. A command backed up by the covenant name of Yahweh. And this is what Boaz does. This is what Boaz does. He called Ruth my daughter. He is willing to treat her like she is a member of his own family. That's the loving commitment God expects from his people. And when Ruth reports to Naomi that Boaz is the one showing this loving commitment, she gets really excited. She says, the Lord bless him, Naomi said. This is verse 20. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, at that time, the community had people called guardian redeemers. And it was a law that allowed for the nearest relative of a widow to, to remarry in the family so that the land and the name of the deceased and the inheritance could be kept going in the family line. And so Naomi realizes that Boaz is an eligible bachelor. <laughs> He's a guardian redeemer. And so she helps Ruth concoct a plan. Ruth is going to get all dressed up. She's going to go down to the threshing floor. And it seems a little risque if you read the story, but she ends up, what she ends up doing in an ancient way is she, as a woman, proposes to this powerful man, Boaz. She asks him, will you marry me? I mean, even in today's culture, that can seem like a little like, oh, oh, she proposed, right? I mean, this is, this is like 3,000 years ago, you know? But like Tamar and Rahab before her, Ruth is a woman of bold initiative, and she is willing to do whatever it takes to bring loving commitment to the family. And Boaz sees that. He sees her character, and he is willing to marry her. He says yes. But the narrator puts us on the edge of our seats. 
there's another guardian redeemer who is closer in line. And first, he must be consulted before this can be made official. And we wonder what will happen. Will she marry for love or will she have to marry this guy because of the law? So when the other man realizes, when the other man is presented this opportunity and he realizes that marrying Ruth would be a part of the deal, he's not interested. He says that it would ruin my own estate. And what happened was he, he realizes I'm going to have to buy the land, I'm going to have to provide for Naomi, I'm going to have to provide for Ruth, I'm going to have to provide for any future children and heirs that come through this line, and thereby, thereby my own inheritance, my own resources, will be divided up further among other people that, won't be part, that aren't in my family. So he, he adds it all up, he adds up the cost, and says it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. But Boaz, he knew the cost, and he did it anyway for the sake of loving commitment. And oh, how this shows us an image of God who counted up the cost of sending his son to save sinners, to save unworthy people, the cost of sending his son to die upon the cross. And he said, yeah, you're worth it. You're absolutely worth it. The loving commitment of God. And that leads me to my last point, is that really through all of this, we see the loving commitment of God. We see the hesed, the love of God for his people. And the story concludes with the reversal of Naomi's circumstance. We're skipping ahead to chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz takes Ruth and she becomes his wife and she, she gives birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is, who is better for you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse the father of David, who we know is the ancestral father of Jesus, as Matthew writes about in his gospel. It's an amazing story how God weaves all of these things into a greater story of redemption, right? Naomi's story began with immense suffering and tragedy. What good could have came out of that story? How will joy and healing come back into her life? And we learn that God brought healing and joy to Naomi through the surprising acts of love of the people around her. That's how God did it. It wasn't through this miraculous on high thing. God did it through surprising, simple acts, profound acts of love. The biblical scholar Daniel Block, he says, no one in the book of Ruth demands of God that they meet his or her needs and no one demands specific, miraculous, divine intervention on his or her his or her own behalf. On the contrary, true covenant faith is expressed by concern for the welfare of others. It is striking that no one in the book prays for a resolution of their own crisis. In each case, a person prays that Yahweh would bless someone else. The world tells us this life is about pursuing your own happiness. But that's actually a bankrupt and the opposite way to live. It's when we rejoice in the Lord and we pursue living for the joy of other people. When we try to fill our lives, when we try to fill others' lives with as much loving commitment and joy as we can possibly can. That's why I've been actually personally thinking about this season. I, I've been asking myself, how can I fill this, this moment? 
How can I fill this morning? How can I fill tonight with as much love as I possibly can? How can I maximally love the people around me? Because that is how God will often bring healing and joy into other people's lives. And actually joy to your own life too. So they say, the people say, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. God did not abandon Naomi. He didn't give up on her, but brought redemption into her life. And the same is true for us in Christ. God has not abandoned us. God will redeem us. God has not left us without a redeemer. And through that, we have hope and joy and peace. And we know that he will come again to redeem and restore all things. And while we await that time when Jesus does come back and bring full redemption, I just want you to ask yourself, how can I be a person of loving commitment? How might God want to use you to bring joy and healing into someone else's life? Because that's how God 